I would suggest to you, I'm going to persuade you that the whole theme that ties all this together is how do we respond to evil? Evil around us and evil done to us. Um, and how do, we, how do we react to that? How are we reacting to it and how should we react to it in light of the gospel? So that's where Paul's going. And here's what he says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written in the scriptures, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll explain that in a minute. That's actually a positive thing, <laughs> though it doesn't sound like it. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there isn't any authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities of the government resists God Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers aren't a terror. They're not scary to those who do good conduct, but to those who do bad. Why would you have any fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant or minister for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the government, the authorities, do not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I'm going to skip ahead a few verses here to verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And here's how he wraps up. Besides this, you know what time it is, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies, a word that means drinking parties. Not in drinking parties and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make any provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why don't we pray together before we push on? Lord Jesus, we know that evil is not just something outside of us or something that comes to us, but it is something that's also inside of us. And so we aren't just victims of evil. We are perpetrators. We are suspects. We are doers of evil. And so we pray that tonight you would speak both tenderly and graciously to us in grace because we are people who need forgiveness and need mercy. But would you also speak to us um, persuasively about how to respond to the bad and the evil and the dark things that have happened to us and that go on around us. We're both caught up in this mess, but we're also victims of the mess. And we need two different kinds of grace from you for each of those things. And so we pray that tonight you would be pleased to come and give us those graces, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.
So one of the most embarrassing moments of my freshman year uh, happened pretty early on. I was 8 o'clock in the morning. I was running out of Russell Hall, which was a 12-story mega dorm. Uh, tons of freshmen living in there. And so in the morning, all of these campus buses would just do circles around the bus stop and pick people up and take them to their class. And so I'm running down the staircase from the dorms to get to the bus. Just things like shutting its doors, it's about to pull off. And um, I'm running, my thumbnail gets caught in the, uh, the stair railing. And the problem was that I kept moving, but my thumbnail didn't. And it, uh, thankfully it stayed on me, uh, but it pulled back a lot. And it, when governments try to torture people, they stick things underneath their thumbnails. Because it's one of the most painful things you will ever feel. But I made my bus, so I got down there, and they reopened the, the doors, and I got on the bus, and uh, it was super crowded, so I'm standing with my knees locked and my arms above my head. Now, we have a few nurses and nursing students in there, and that's a bad idea if you're in excruciating pain, uh, because the last thing I remember was everything was dizzy and blurry, and I felt really hot and was sweating. And the next thing I remember was uh, the bus driver pulled the bus over, and a big clearing had formed in the aisle of the bus, and the bus driver's down on knees shaking me, saying, are you all right? Wake up, wake up. Uh, and thankfully, I came to and uh, tried to get off at the next stop and never see any of those people again. <laughs> now, the next time and the last time in my life I've ever passed out was my spring break year, uh, spring break of my senior year, and it was for less innocent reasons. And in that, that occasion, I also had my friends shaking me uh, and saying, Ben, Ben, are you all right? Wake up, wake up. Uh, and God was merciful and, uh, and did wake me up physically and later woke me up spiritually after that. But in both cases, other people had to come to me and shake me out of the condition that I was in. One was fainting. They had to wake me up out of that stupor. And the other was drunkenness. Now, you just got back from a week, most of you back home at spring break. Um, did any of you sleep until noon and a parent had to come and shake you out of your, whatever they call it, laziness or whatever? Or has this happened to you medically or in other conditions where someone has had to come and shake you out of the sleepiness or the grogginess that you were in? Or shake you out of and wake you up from the drunkenness you were in or the fainting that you were in? Um, we've either been the person waking up or we've been the person who's being woken up or shaken awake. And uh, Paul ended this passage with a wake-up call. Paul said, if you caught it in verse 11 down at this very last paragraph of the, of the passage, he says, Christians, you know what time it is. The hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, which presumes that the Christians he was writing to were in some kind of half-conscious state. Sleepiness, grogginess, some stupor that they needed to be shaken out of and woken up. Now, when we wake people up, what we're doing is we're bringing them kind of, we wake people up who are physically present, but they're not really there, right? And you're calling them back into reality. You're calling them out of whatever state that they're in. And Paul is, in a sense, is calling Christians, he's calling you and I, out of a sleepiness or a grogginess or even perhaps a drunkenness 
that we tend uh, to do life in. And he's saying something like this. I mean, he gets very specific and lists these things towards the end of the passage. He says, wake up. Wake up from your stupor. Wake up from your half-conscious state where it sounds like a good idea or like a way that fits who you are to be running around in drinking parties, to be running around in debauchery or hooking up, sexual immorality, sensuality, which is basically if I feel something, I do it. Physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever, like animalistic. I feel an urge, I satisfy the urge. That's what sensuality is. Um, and so Paul is calling us to wake up out of these things and to be alert, to come back. And Paul is saying, come back to the light. But he's narrowing in on one particular thing that he's going to call you out of your stupor tonight. Back to consciousness. Consciousness is when you're alert of your surroundings, right? You know how to act in a way that fits where you are and who you are. So the specific thing that Paul is calling us back to consciousness in is how we respond to evil. And he sticks on this theme for a good bit. Like That's why even though the chapter numbers change and even though the verses press on, I think that's still the theme that, is, uh, that Paul is on this whole time. And so uh, he's basically saying three things. We'll spend a, a quick little time on each of these. Number one, we all tend to sleepwalk our way through the Christian life. In particular, we all tend to sleepwalk our way in our response to evil. Evil that happens to us. Evil that cuts you, that makes you bleed, that hurts you. And evil that's going on, kind of swirling on in the world around us. So we tend to sleepwalk our way through these things in some half-conscious state. Not really there. And therefore not really responding in the right way. And then the second thing we'll look at is what is an awakened response to evil done to you or happening around you look like? And then the third, the, the big the, the million dollar question is how in the world are you supposed to wake up? Because uh, anybody can teach a moral lesson of you should be this way, not this way. Uh, but nobody but God can motivate you and energize you and fuel you to actually change. And so that's where we'll end. But the first thing is what I already said. We tend to be sleepwalkers. Now, some of us, uh, I don't know, have you ever, here's what I mean by this spiritually speaking. Have you ever ended a day, if you're a Christian, you, you get to the end of your day and you begin to realize, did I think about God even once today? What practical difference did me being a Christian or Jesus being raised from the dead, reigning over all reality as king, what difference did it make at all? Um, how did the gospel change anything I did today? You, and you come to the conclusion, I don't think I even thought about God, much less it changed anything in how I spoke, desired, thought. Um, that's what I mean that we kind of walk through this trance or stupor or sleepwalker way. And um, some of us, when we are kind of shaken awake by passages like this, or our conscience pricks us, and we have those little epiphanies, I haven't thought about God today, we hit the snooze button, right? Some of us are chronic snoozers. Some of us hit the snooze button probably ten times every morning. And spiritually, we, uh, humanity has been hitting the snooze button ever since the alarm's been going off. I'm too comfortable where I am. I want to stay here a little longer. Tomorrow, next time, I'll deal with this. Um, I'll get serious about God later. I'll wake up later. But now I'm comfortable where I am. And so we live life hitting the snooze button. And we sleep our way through the gospel. We sleep our way through life. We're asleep to God. Um, and some of us are sleepwalkers. So maybe you've heard the alarm and gotten out of bed, but you're still in this semi-conscious state where things are always fuzzy. They don't, you can't really wrap your head around it. It doesn't make much sense. 
And so whether we're snoozers or sleepwalkers, this sleepiness towards the gospel, kind of this fuzziness, dizziness towards God, who he is, where he is, what he's like, what he's doing, that's what I mean when we're asleep to God, uh, that sleepiness impacts the way we respond to evil. And so how does it impact the way we respond to evil? How does being sleepy or half awake to God uh, change and negatively affect how we respond to bad stuff that happens to us? I would say um, there's three ways. Three is not a magical number. I just saw three ways here. So I said there's three ways we respond to it. Number one, we tend to ignore it. Um, We sweep it under the rug. We uh, We deny that it's really an issue at all. And so we prefer, like, and this is kind of naive, we prefer the convenience of not having to deal with evil. An unbroken, unfallen world, and people who don't do bad things to you, that kind of world's just easier to live in. And so if we can deny that evil's even there, if we can push all that stuff away and pretend like it's not there, life is more efficient, right? It's more comfortable, it's like the bed at 7 in the morning when you're supposed to get out. Would I rather get out and do life, or would I rather stay here? I'd rather stay here and ignore what's going on out there. And so we tend to ignore it, and we say things like, when we're sinned against or when evil is done to us, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. And we confuse niceness for dealing with evil in, in the kind of way that God deals with evil. And so we sweep it under the rug and say it's not a big deal, which is the lie of all lies. We'll talk a little bit of the cross. If it says anything else, it says evil is a big deal. Even little evil. Or we say we don't have the time to deal with it. So we ignore it, number one. Number two, we rebrand it. This is hard to hear for your generation and my generation. Because I think of all all the responses to evil, this is the one we are experts in. All of us are skilled in rebranding or repackaging evil and calling it good. Here's what it sounds like. And... I say these things with thoughtfulness and prayer, not flippantly, because I realize these are controversial things to talk about. Um, But we we repackage evil and say things like, it's not the life of a child, it's it's reproductive freedom. See how we've taken something and we've put a new packaging on it and we've spun the words and we've marketed it and focus group tested it and now it's good. And that's a way of responding to evil and destruction in a way that actually spreads it, doesn't kill it. Um, Or perhaps we say things like, he really does love me, it's just the way he expresses love to me is sleeping with me, or always wanting me to hook up with him, or her. Um, And so we repackage evil and call it love. Now here's the dangerous thing about this, the prophets, if you know anything about the Old Testament and the truth tellers in the Old Testament, The most dangerous place, the last symptom before somebody's entire spiritual collapse and implosion was this. They couldn't tell the difference in good and evil anymore. And so they celebrated evil. And they hated and ran from the good. Um, This, in a sense, this this blindness, this rebranding, a repackaging of evil and parading it around as a good thing to be celebrated is stage four soul cancer, and it is deadly. We ignore evil, we repackage and rebrand evil and call it good, and say, voila, the problem's solved. We don't have a problem anymore, because now it's a good thing. We've spun it around. The third thing that all of us are also experts in is we repay evil, right? We'll kind of do a few case studies in just a second to see how this has happened to us today. 
but we, we're, we're vigilantes. Do you know what the word vigilante means? Vigilante is a person who, seeing no justice around them, begins to enforce justice. So spiritual vigilantes or relational vigilantes are those who, believing there is no God, he is not just, he doesn't care about justice, and he's not going to do anything about the evil that's been done to me. I must make things right. It's a very self-righteous position to be in. It's very bitter, it's very cold, it's very hard, very judgmental. Um, but this place of being a vigilante, someone who repays evil for evil, grows only in the soil of atheism. And I mean the kind of atheism that atheists have in their heart and Christians have in their heart. This anti-God force, in a sense. It grows only in that soil because you have to be completely lights out to the God of justice, who does bring justice, who does care about the afflicted, who does right every wrong. Only if you're completely blind to that do we go into vigilante mode of score settling, of gossip, of slander, of rehearsing in our mind over and over again what that person said and why it was wrong and why we're the victim. And that's what this kind of vigilanteism is, and it's a repayment of evil that Paul talks about in these passages. Okay, so to try to bring this down to earth a little bit better, think with me uh, through a few scenarios that probably happened this week. I think probably happened to all of us. Uh, maybe one will resonate with you more than others. So the first scenario, I just made these up. Think about this. Like an acquaintance of yours uh, doesn't want to join your fan club. <laughs> they don't worship the ground you walk on. Um, they're kind of cold shoulder nonchalant whenever you're around. Um, unlike people we enjoy being around, they don't kind of give you any signals or body language that they enjoy you or even like you or want you to be there. Um, and so this person has kind of nudged you away and you feel murdered by it, like they've just erased you out of existence. They're avoiding you or whatever else. Um, and they seem very cold to you. How did you respond when you received that arrow of evil? When the wrong was done to you in that scenario, how did you respond? Did you ignore it? It's not a big deal. I didn't like them anyway. They were not my friend. They're not cool. I don't want to be with them. Did you rebrand it or repackage it? Did we... Um, did we deny it? Did we repay it by saying, we're going to level the playing field here. They want to ignore me, I'm going to ignore them. If they're invisible, if I'm invisible to them, they're going to be invisible to me. Um, and I'm going to kind of proactively go and make sure people know they're not all that great in my conversation or the comments that I drop here and there. Did your response keep evil in circulation? Or did it nip it in the bud? Take another scenario. This kind of comes back to one of the things I was talking about earlier. You're reading through your Facebook newsfeed this week, and you're seeing some of the crazy, mean, and hateful stuff that's being tossed around this week because of the gay marriage laws and other things that are being passed in Indiana right now. If you're not aware of that scenario, I challenge you to read your newsfeed this evening. We're more than three or four people and not see comments about this. So when you saw that, whatever your opinion on that is, whatever your convictions on that are, did you ignore it? Put your head in the sand? I'd rather not think about this kind of cultural change. Thinking that that makes the problem go away? Uh, perhaps did you repackage it and rebrand it, as many of our generations do? Call it something it's not. It's, this, it's 2015. Give it the times. What are we talking about here? 
And I'm not speaking specifically to the laws, whether they're good or bad or anything like that. I'm talking about what's your response to evil going on around us? Do you just rebrand it and say it's not that bad? Or did you repay it? Whether you're a liberal and want to fire some torpedoes across at uh, some conservatives and their narrow-mindedness, or whether you're a conservative and you want to fire some missiles back at the liberals and say, how can you believe what you believe? Or knowing that you'd rather not have every friend of yours delete you, your, you being a friend on their account, did you just kind of keep it inside and murder people with your thoughts? I, I bring these things up not just because I imagine them, but because I feel them in my own heart and I see them around me. We are people who repackage evil with expertise. And we call what God is against, we turn it into what, something that God is for. What God hates, we turn into something that God loves, and we parade it around. We're people who ignore it. We're people who repay it. Perhaps this last one hits closer home to all of us. Maybe a parent, a pastor, a friend of yours isn't loving you well right now. We're a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you're hurt by it, and you should be hurt by it, because let's say they're really not loving you well. How did you respond in that scenario? Did you ignore it? Do you repackage it and call it something it's not? Do you retaliate and get them back? Do you keep evil in circulation? You know what a pinball machine is? Pull that big thing back in this ball, just goes, bounces off everything. Evil's been doing that since it entered the world. It's never stopped. It's like one of those balls that bounces around and everything it hits, it destroys. And in these responses, these fleshy responses, these half-awake responses to evil, push that ball back off in some other direction. And people are hit by it. God is hit by it. We are hit by it. That's how much is on the line here. And so oftentimes our response to evil and our stupor uh, causes more evil. Those Facebook comments you make hurt people. They anger people. They draw evil out. That avoidance, that cold shoulder, that slander, that gossip does real damage. And so ignoring, repackaging, repaying doesn't quash evil or erase it. It spreads it, sometimes without us knowing it. That's why the world looks the way it does. And so what are we to do about it? This is where Paul's, Paul's words that he wrote here begin to kick in. But, I, but you have to see the problem first. You have to see the way you already respond to evil before you'll listen to Paul, that we need to be woken up. So what does Paul waking us up look like? Well, he calls us to hear the alarm clock, to realize what time it is, and to kind of come alive uh, because the sun is up. And he's in a sense saying, I promise you, Christian, I promise you, if you wake up to who God is and what he's doing in the world and how he is responding to evil, it will radically change the way you respond to evil. So if you get out of bed and follow him, your life will change. And so, remember the, the last paragraph, again, this metaphor of kind of the sunrise is here, the night is over, the day has dawned. Paul is saying that in that metaphor, something that happens outside of us every single morning radically affects our lives. This little, this, this earth turns and we see the star again and the sun's there and it's like, oh wow, an entirely different kind of behavior is now appropriate. Also at Russell Hall when I was a freshman, there was a guy we called Robe Guy because he always wore a bathrobe and his hair was always disheveled 24-7 for four years in college. He wore the same robe, same pajama bottoms. Um, things have gone off the tracks when the sun comes up 
and you act in ways that are only appropriate to nighttime. Think about all the changes when the sun comes up. You get out of bed. You clean yourself. You brush your teeth. You eat a meal. You get in your car. You go somewhere. You begin to do stuff for like 8 or 10 or 15 hours. Then the sun goes down and you go back home and you sleep again. Our behavior is radically different depending on what time it is. And Paul is saying, Jesus has died and been raised up and he is in charge of everything. He is reigning and renewing everything. Do you know what time it is? Is your behavior not fitting the time? Like road guy's behavior wasn't fitting the time. Um, so Paul is saying, in a sense, get with the time. The gospel has invaded evil. God himself, the innocent one, has parachuted into the evil, into the wickedness, into the darkness, and he's beginning to rewire and renew everything through himself. Are you awake to that? So really quick, what does it look like if we are awake to this? What would be the marks of a gracious or gospel response to evil instead of that half-asleep, fleshy response. There's a few things. Number one, instead of ignoring the debt or the cost of evil, we acknowledge the cost of evil when it's done to us and when it's going on around us. I'm going to give you a few sentences from an internal dialogue or some thoughts of a person who's moving through this process. They would be, th they would be thinking or saying, brother or sister, what you did was wrong. What you said doesn't fit who you are in Jesus. It doesn't fit what God's doing in the world. You shouldn't have said that. It acknowledges evil, and it calls it for what it is. If anyone has ever done this to you, I guarantee you, it affected you more than when people said, no biggie, don't worry about it. Has anybody yet told you the truth about something you've done that hurt them? It's powerful when you hear it, if not frustrating as well. The second thing, other than acknowledging the debt of evil, we cancel the debt. And this begins to bring us to a close in a few minutes. But we cancel the debt because how could you hold a debt over a person when God, who has been more provoked, more injured, more assaulted by your evil and my evil, how could we hold someone else to account when he has released you? There's a parable in the Gospels about this. A guy who owes five bucks, a guy who owes 500,000 bucks. King forgives the guy with the bigger debt. And the guy, who has five, the guy who's owed $5 from someone else holds it over his head and lords it over him. When are you going to pay me? The point's supposed to be almost humorous. How can we hold people responsible to pay us <coughs> to, to atone for their sins against us when God has released you? So we acknowledge the debt. We cancel the debt. But we absorb the debt. You have to. There's a guy named Dan Hamilton in his book called Forgiveness. He gives this example because even after you forgive someone and cancel the debt of the wrong done to you, there is still damage. There is still bleeding. There is still hurt. There's still memories. There's still trauma that has to be dealt with. He says this, If a careless friend breaks a lamp at my home, I'll forgive him. That means I will not make him buy me a new lamp. I've set him free from the penalty of the sin. And I say, I release you from your debt for breaking my lamp. But when my friend has walked away, we're not finished. Because we've dealt with the penalty, but the damage remains. There's still a price to be paid. The lamp is still broken. Who's going to pay for it? I must pay for it myself. He says a lamp is easy to price and easy to pay for. But what about damage that is intangible? Unpriceable. Broken relationships. Ruined reputations. 
missed opportunities. There are payments that have to be made by somebody to repair that damage. What would that internal dialogue sound like after we have granted release to a person who we could hold it, hold it against them? What does it sound like after we release them? It would sound like brother or sister, what you have done has burdened me. It has hurt me. It has added weight to my back that I now must carry the rest of my life. But I love you and I release you from this and I'm paying the tax. Now the last thing is this. We acknowledge the debt, we cancel the debt, we absorb the debt, and we rinse and repeat daily, just like our shampoo bottle says. And the reason we rinse and repeat daily is because whoever said forgive and forget was an idiot, because it's impossible to forget, especially if it's painful. It's like a rock in your shoe. Every time you move, you feel it. God never asks you to forget what's been done against you. He never asks you to forget evil that's been done. Uh, happening around us. And so this internal dialogue would continue, this person talking to themselves back into the gospel, waking themselves up with what they know to be true, and they say something like this, I've chosen to forgive them and release them from responsibility, but I can't forget. And I'm sinful too. I'm sleepy towards God and the gospel. And so I will have to give myself to a daily process of re-forgiving, re-releasing reabsorbing the pain and the cost and refusing to gratify the sinful desires of my flesh, which will always talk you into vengeance. So that's what those internal dialogues start to sound like. And so, really quickly, is this a naive place to be? Does this fix all all our relationships? No. This passage is unbelievably realistic. Uh, Paul says in the beginning of the passage, He says, as far as it depends on you, in verse 18, live at peace with everyone. That's giving a big big nod to the fact that some people don't want to be reconciled after they do evil against you. Some people don't give a flip whether you forgive them or not. And they will continue to sin against you. Uh, and, and, And God knows that. God is not calling us to be reconciled because that's something outside of our control. He's calling us to forgive and to release and to be hopeful that the person reconciles with us. And it's, obvious, it's also not a coercive forgiveness. It says, maybe if I do this, I'll get something out of it. They'll, they'll go on an apology tour and, may, and vindicate me. No. Because Paul says this line about it'll heap burning coals on their head. That's, a, that's an image from the culture of the day. There was a sign of penitence and repentance when people would carry around ashes on their head. It was showing that they're repentant. Kind of like wearing sackcloth. Uh, that the Bible says other times. And so Paul is saying that your kindness in the face of their evil could have the effect of humbling them to repent. Could. May. Also may not. And so it's not a course of um, forgiveness that we grant just so that they will do what we want. We need to end at this place of what could our motives be for changing because I might have just said some beautiful things to you. For those who have experienced a greater degree of evil aimed at you than others, I've said some challenging and perhaps provocative things. But how in the world are you supposed to wake up? Because if it was this easy, politicians, teachers, pastors could have fixed the world's problem millennia ago. The only way we begin to become people who acknowledge evil, release people from the debt, 
pay the debt ourselves and rinse and repeat daily is when we see that this is the very thing that God himself is doing to you and has done to the world. Morgan drew attention to the fact that this is Holy Week. Friday, we remember what Ben read about earlier. This Jesus, who he says in what Ben read, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins so that we might die to score settling. Die to the sin of vengeance. Die to gossip. Die to making people pay. He says, by his wounds, by his trauma, by the violence and assault done to him, you have been healed. And in a sense, released from that. I should mention, and uh, we didn't get time, I need to stop. There's so much that could be said here about the authorities and the government. Here is one way God deals with evil. He's given the authorities, the police, the government, the Congress, the president, the mayor, the governor. And you should imagine a little clerical collar on the cops and the firefighters and the president. Because this passage says not once but twice, the government is God's minister to protect us from evil. Thank God when you call 911, there's someone with a gun to come and protect your life. So there are recourses to evil that are done against you. And being a Christian doesn't mean if your laptop gets stolen in Corbett, we say, I forgive you, don't worry about it. It could mean you say, I forgive this person, I'm going to work on my heart to release them, but I'm still pressing charges. Because God has provided for justice. He loves justice. He will get justice. Either on the cross of Jesus, if your sins are put on him, he will, you will, who you have sinned against will receive justice for what you've done to them. Or God will receive justice at the last day where everybody stands in front of him and gives an account of their lives. One way or the other, everybody pays. Either through Jesus or yourself. God gets justice, which frees you to not have to seek justice in a vengeful, evil way. Let's pray as we um, let this passage hopefully dig deeper into our hearts and our minds throughout this week, especially this week. Father, we pray that throughout this week as we approach the cross of Jesus, where your justice and your mercy meet perfectly, that we pray that we would both see the release that we have been granted from our sin and our evil. We pray that we would see you, God in the flesh, absorbing our evil, but not bouncing it back on us. We pray that we would see the wrongs that have been done against us satisfied, the justice for that satisfied on the cross of Jesus. And we pray that we would become people who more and more look like you look as you respond to evil done against you.